loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Kimberly Aquaviva. Kim's a PhD, MSW, and CSE, and a tenured faculty member at the George Washington University School of Nursing. As a social worker teaching within a school of nursing, her scholarship is interdisciplinary and collaborative. Her scholarly work focuses on LGBTQ aging and end-of-life issues, and her book, LGBTQ Inclusive Hospice and Palliative Care, A Practical Guide to Transforming Professional Practice, will be published by Harrington Park Press and distributed by Columbia University Press this month. You can order that on Amazon.com. She has a Ph.D. in human sexuality education from the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education, an MSW from the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice, and a B.A. in sociology from the University of Pennsylvania College of Arts and Sciences. And she's also an AACECT certified sexuality educator. You can find her on Twitter at Kim Aquaviva, which is A C Q U A V I V A and E M underscore dash underscore podcast, also a Twitter link. Welcome, Kim. Thanks so much. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Absolutely. This is uh, a very dear subject to me, which I've which I've spoken about before, um, given presentations on, and I'm so excited to see uh, your book because what I what I realized preparing for that was how um, how bad it is, I guess. <laughs> how, how how much um, misinformation or um, misused information there is in this area of end of life care for the LGBTQ community. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a topic that not many healthcare professionals have um, an awareness of, and individuals who are currently doing hospice and palliative care work um, may think that they're doing the very best they can with this population and and their intentions are good, but they don't necessarily have the information needed to really deliver that care. I think that is important to say because uh, when when I've, you know, talked with people, they really want to deliver good care. uh, And part of it is their own information, but part of it is also the the environment um, not being set up properly to make it um, make it easy to do that to offer that care. Absolutely, and from the point that a patient and family first interact with hospice and palliative care, there are barriers there that providers don't even realize are barriers. So, for example, uh, during your first visit, let's say that you're a patient who's being admitted to hospice, uh, the team comes to your home, they are asking basic information, well, they'll often just eyeball um, gender, 
they'll they'll look at you and they'll decide which box to check. But there's no conversation about what sex was someone assigned at birth and what gender do they identify as now. And so without those questions being asked, trans patients um, are in this closet that they're forced to voluntarily kind of come out come out to their providers if they want them to have that awareness. And given that a lot of hands-on care happens uh, in the home when someone's on hospice care, having that information is really important. So providers really need to know to ask those questions. And from a from a recipient end, I think it even goes uh, further back than that in the sense that, uh, you know, if you're choosing a... Um, a deliverer, delivery of, of services. We have choices here. Some places I'm sure they don't in hospice and palliative care, but we do have choices. Is the organization presenting itself as inclusive? Because uh, in this area, strangely or not so strangely, there is a problem with uh, homophobia in organizations and a real fear of coming out. And so if, if people don't get kind of the idea that they're, they're going to be received well, they don't even tell their truth. Absolutely. Um, and homophobia, unfortunately, no matter what community you live in in the country, homophobia is a very real phenomenon that patients face and also healthcare professionals face within the organizations where they work. So for patients and families who are interacting with hospice and palliative care providers, they're going to be looking for lots of different cues that this is a provider and an agency or an organization that is welcoming and affirming of who they are. And so it goes down to how they're advertising. Do they see imagery on the website and brochure? that echo that that show and depict a potentially a patient population it's it's usually the images you have to kind of project onto it the identity of who you think they are on a website sure. but are there images that are you know same gender dyads that could be sisters, they could be a couple um, is there imagery there is there a non-discrimination statement that really clearly says we will not discriminate against you based on sex assigned at birth, current gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation. And that, if there is not such a non-discrimination statement, at the outset, LGBTQ individuals are wise not to feel comfortable seeking care from an organization. Um, Because that non-discrimination statement, that is... I would say the most visible, but also the most powerful statement of where an organization's intentions are. It doesn't mean that the care delivered will then be fully inclusive, but it certainly is a first step to saying, we care about this enough that we actually say that we won't discriminate against you based on these things. Absolutely. This seems a little off topic, but I think it it illustrates the point when my um, youngest kid, we were looking for for her and one of the schools said we are um, open and inclusive uh, they they talked about um, sexuality and gender and we picked that school <laughs> and it matters right you know, like, is that it, the it best matters. choice educationally I have no idea but right. that was so compelling at that time this was um, about 20 years ago 
that it overrode other considerations. And I think uh, that that's true for patients and families as well who identify as LGBTQ. Um, being able to be safe when you're already so incredibly vulnerable, when you're facing a serious or life-limiting illness, um, just knowing that an organization or a program um, will respect you, that's, that's incredibly important. That's, that's a really good point. I, I have um, gone through hospice with a partner, my wife who died, and I would say, although we got wonderful care, when people made uh, inappropriate assumptions about us, it really took a lot of energy from mm-hmm. us. Yep. Uh, because we couldn't go forward without correcting it, but that just really takes a lot out of you. Absolutely. Well, and when you're and when you're facing, you know, when you, with you and with your with your wife who died, you are both on this journey that requires every ounce of the energy you had, and to have to channel any of that energy into being someone's teachable moment, really robs you of the opportunity to use that energy for something else. And with limited time with a loved one, um, every minute really counts. So for someone to have to even take 10 minutes out of their day to educate someone about um, the correct words to use in referring to a partner or um, educating someone about what gender pronouns they use, that's 10 minutes that person will never get back. And for someone who's healthy and doing well and young and vibrant, you have a long life ahead of you. But if you know that, that, if you know that the horizon is is a lot closer. If you know that that timeline is shorter, 10 minutes is a lot of time. So that's why it's really, the onus is on healthcare professionals to make sure that no LGBTQ patient or family member spends even a minute of their precious time educating us as healthcare professionals. You know, I think, I think also um, there's uh, There's a a pretty good comfort, at least for me and most of the people I know, if someone doesn't know something, Mm -hmm. if they know they don't know. I agree. I totally agree. um, It's it's actually when an assumption is made that's wrong, Mm -hmm. that energy kind of gets wrapped up in it. Absolutely. It's not when someone misspeaks. So I talked when I talk with groups or with students, I'll talk to them about um, gender pronouns. And whenever I talk with groups, I talk to them about how hard it was for me in the beginning, adapting and understanding and dealing with using different kinds of pronouns. Because like many of us, I was raised with two gender pronoun options, he or she. And so when I met people who went, what? who use pronouns like Z and Zer. I found myself stumbling all the time, all the time. But my intention was good. And I was trying my very, very best. I would catch myself in the moment. I would apologize. And my friends who were trans, they understood I was trying my very best. Um, And it it didn't take me long to get so much better at it. Um, But my friends were all patient with me and also understanding. And I think all of us have an obligation to to the extent that we're comfortable. I think we all have an obligation to create a space where it's safe for people to make their best effort. 
So for me, as uh, a lesbian social worker, I have opportunities to interact with lots of different people in my life, professionally, personally, and sometimes people will make um, inaccurate assumptions after meeting me or um, you know, or they may look at me and make some assumptions. And I try to be understanding uh, and view it as an opportunity to treat, to, to help educate them, but also to be gentle so that people don't feel fearful about asking questions or making mistakes in the future. Because I think that's the last thing that I want healthcare professionals or anyone to feel when we talk about working with LGBTQ patients and families. I don't want people to fear working with these patients and families because they're afraid of making a mistake. Absolutely. So there's that delicate, delicate balance. But I think you and I are both talking in the end about intention. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And also acknowledging that even Mm -hmm. if your intention is good, if the impact of what you've done um, hurts someone, we also have a responsibility to own that. So if my intention is incredibly good when it comes to pronouns, but let's say that I keep stumbling over it for six years, well, the impact on a person could be that they may feel as though I don't care enough about this to really master this. And and so it would be up to me to really own that and to understand that, um, that it's not enough just to say, well, I'm doing my best, that I have to really do my best um, and, and acknowledge that when mistakes are made uh, and the impact uh, that that has on someone, we have to own that. We can't, Absolutely. the intent isn't kind of a get out of jail free card, <laughs> right. um, but, but we want to be patient with one another uh, and also as understanding as we can be. And I think this is also where it's important for allies and people who do not identify as LGBTQ to also help with this heavy lifting. So it shouldn't always be trans folks who are educating everyone about pronouns. Um, It should be all of us. I have something in the signature line of my email that lists my pronouns. Well, my pronouns are she and her, but then there's a link that says, do you want to know more about pronouns? And it's amazing to me how many people have said to me, that was really cool. I didn't know anything about that. So if there's ever an opportunity uh, to do advocacy in tiny, quiet ways, it can have an impact on educating other healthcare professionals and other lay people as well. Yes, I recently encountered that when I when I ran a support group at a young women's survivor conference for LGBTQ people and I tripped all over my pronouns <laughs> just because I don't have enough practice. Right. But <laughs> but I know how to apologize. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> At least I made and, a and start. You were trying. <laughs> right. And and I think the other thing too is to acknowledge that learning something new is hard, but you're willing to do the work. Um, and Everybody makes mistakes. I was at a presentation recently within the last two months, and there was someone presenting on trans inclusion. And on his slide was a case study. It was anonymized. um, But in the case study, he realized he used the wrong gender pronoun for the trans person he was referring to in his case study. (laughs) And what I loved about this was he said, oh, my God look, I did it myself just now. Um, Mm -hmm. And he owned it. 
um, and said, you know what, I can't believe this. This is one of those things where you have to go to extra steps to be careful. But this is someone who does trans health work full time. So anyone can make a mistake. Um, As long, I think the important thing is that we're always striving to reduce the number of mistakes we make and that we also know how to apologize when a mistake is made. Absolutely. Just so that people get a little bit of a sense of, of what you're, how you're talking about things in the book, would you just read a little bit from sure. the beginning of the book? Yeah, absolutely. And just as a, like a two-second preface to that, um, in writing the book, I decided to write using plain language. So the book is not written like an academic textbook, and that's intentional. Um, and you'll hear that as I'm reading. Okay. When I began work on this book, I set out to write a resource for hospice and palliative care professionals that would be equally relevant and engaging to palliative care and hospice professionals from multiple disciplines, would change the way readers approach their work with all patients, not just with those who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and or questioning, in parentheses, LGBTQ, and would show readers that having conservative religious or moral beliefs and providing high-quality, inclusive care to LGBTQ people and their families are not mutually exclusive. While the majority of the book is dedicated to achieving the first two goals, the third goal is equally important. In the 12 years that I've been speaking to audiences about caring for LGBTQ individuals with chronic or life-limiting illness, one thing has remained fairly constant. Healthcare providers with more conservative religious beliefs come to my presentations with significant discomfort at the outset, if they come at all. Changing the way LGBTQ individuals with chronic or life-limiting illnesses are cared for requires a paradigm shift in the way that we, collectively, as healthcare professionals, approach the conversation about what it means to be inclusive in our compassion. You don't need to change your religious or moral beliefs to provide good care to LGBTQ individuals. So if you're unsure about buying or reading a book about LGBTQ people, don't be. At its core, this is simply a book about people. LGBTQ inclusive practice begins with an active choice, a choice to change our practice so that all are welcomed and treated with dignity and compassion. I've never met a hospice or palliative care provider who consciously excludes LGBTQ individuals and their families. I don't believe that healthcare professionals make a conscious choice to give poor care to LGBTQ individuals and their family. However, unless palliative care and hospice providers make a conscious choice to engage in LGBTQ inclusive practice, they are by default unintentionally choosing to exclude LGBTQ people from receiving the high quality care that all people deserve. You know, we're going to go to break, but I want to come back and talk about my idea, which I think you do share, and we'll we'll talk more about it, that really if people uh, focus their attention on LGBTQ um, care and what that takes, they also improve care in general. Absolutely. Um, because it's so much a part of not making assumptions about people, hearing their own stories, hearing who's important to them. Uh, if it's kind of a unilateral <laughs> spread, it seems to help. But Absolutely. let's talk more about that when we get back. Great. And listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, for Facebook, Twitter, etc. And to find Kim Aquaviva, go to Kim 
Aquaviva ACQ, I'm sorry, at Kim Aquaviva ACQUAVIVA. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Kim Aquaviva about her new book, LGBTQ Inclusive Hospice and Palliative Care. And before the break, Kim, I was saying that I I believed that making these shifts to um, organizing our institutions and our care um, to be LGBTQ inclusive also, um, by definition, makes it more inclusive for for other people as well. Um, Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Cheryl. Um, The book, even though the title has LGBTQ in it, um, I was really intentional about framing the title as being LGBTQ inclusive care versus LGBTQ care, because really it is about transforming all care. And if we transform the care that we provide so that it's inclusive, it ends up being better care. So avoiding making assumptions. Uh, One of the things that I also included within the book was a a new model for doing um, history and physical, really asking questions about the 
the patient as a person and having that really anchor it as opposed to the more linear, okay, we ask you about your your different body systems and then we ask you about um, social history. Instead, the, the model that I um, outline in the book really starts and ends with a focus on the patient as a person and that benefits everyone. And the other thing that is Absolutely. different. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go, go right ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say the other thing that is different in, and one of the things that I included in the book is making sure that hospice and palliative care professionals are asking all patients and families um, about the impact of their illness, whether it's the, the symptoms of the illness or the side effects of treatment um, or the side effects of palliative therapies on, um, on sexuality because it's one of those taboo things. So we don't really talk about, people don't talk about death and they don't talk about sex. And so when you put the two together, no one talks about sex with people who are seriously ill or dying. And so included within the book are questions that healthcare professionals can ask patients with serious or life-limiting illnesses about the impact of their illness or their treatment um, on um, their uh, desire for sex, their desire for intimacy with a partner or without a partner, uh, their ability to have or achieve orgasm. Um, and so those are questions that are important to ask, and yet very few healthcare professionals are having those conversations. You know, I went to every single appointment with my wife when she was ill. I cannot remember one time when anybody asked us about sex. Right. And it doesn't happen. So the reason why I included this in my book actually has nothing to do with LGBTQ people at all, which is kind of, I don't know, it's kind of ironic. Um, When my mom, when I was younger, when I was in my 20s, my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And uh, I was you know, over over the years, so she was sick for four years. And over, during that time, I was working my dissertation. Um, I was living in Philadelphia. She and my dad were in Texas. And as she got sicker, she reached out to me and she said, Kim, I, I want to ask you a question. Um, and it was something important to her. And she knew my PhD that I was working on was in human sexuality. And she said, I, I don't know who else to ask. And she asked me a question about why sex was painful or uncomfortable um, and what to do about it. And once I got over the initial, just that like, must have been a, oh, a I was like, oh, mom, really? Like I can handle the fact you're dying, but please don't acknowledge you've ever had sex with my father. Like this is the worst <laughs> of my existence. Exactly. Um, but she had no one to ask and she didn't feel like she could ask her oncologist. And so for me to have a conversation with my mom, who at the time was 40, probably 49 or 50 at that point in her illness, to talk with my mother about lube, like I thought I was going to burst into flames. It was like the worst thing ever. <laughs> and I want to, I want to. Swear. You lived through it. I did. I lived through it. Um, but I remember in that moment thinking, something has to change. Healthcare mm-hmm. professionals have to have these conversations with patients because no, like family members, like 20 something daughters shouldn't be fielding questions about vaginal dryness from their mom. Like this shouldn't happen. <laughs> so when I wrote my book, I thought, you know what? It's really important. And sexuality um, is so important and sex and intimacy. These are important topics and healthcare professionals need to be taught how to ask the questions. So since I was writing this book, I thought, 
you know what? I think it's really a component of good care, period, for everybody. And so that's why it's in the book. It's actually because of my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, mom. Would you like to share a little bit from the sexuality and sexual health part of the book? Sure. Since absolutely. we're on the topic anyway. <laughs> we are. Okay. To understand the concept of sexual health, an understanding of a more foundational concept, sexuality is needed. The World Health Organization defines sexuality as, quote, a central aspect of being human throughout life that encompasses sex, gender identities and roles, sexual orientation, eroticism, pleasure, intimacy, and reproduction. Sexuality is experienced and expressed in thoughts, fantasies, desires, beliefs, attitudes, values, behaviors, practices, roles, and relationships. While sexuality can include all of these dimensions, not all of them are always experienced or expressed. Sexuality is influenced by the interaction of biological, psychological, social, economic, political, cultural, legal, historical, religious, and spiritual factors, end quote. What's notable about this definition is that it asserts that sexuality is, quote, a central aspect of being human throughout life, end quote. Whether the patient is 30 years old or 90, sexuality is a central aspect of that patient's humanity. The same is true for the patient who is weeks or days from death. Sexuality remains central to their built being. Quote, even patients facing terminal illness may desire to remain sexually active if possible. This needs to be placed within the overall context of goals and desires for care. Patients and their loved ones may feel uncomfortable initiating discussions about sexuality and sexual health needs in the context of palliative care. In most con- cultures, sexuality, significant illness, and dying are all considered taboo topics, at least to some degree. So it becomes part of the healthcare professional's duty to raise these issues, end quote. And that's from Greedling 2016. If sexuality is a central part of being human throughout the lifespan, what does it mean for a patient in palliative care or hospice care to experience sexual health? The World Health Organization declares that sexual health is, quote, a state of physical, emotional, mental, and social well-being in relation to sexuality. It is not merely the absence of disease, dysfunction, or infirmity. Sexual health requires a positive and respectful approach to sexuality and sexual relationships, as well as the possibility of having pleasurable and safe sexual experiences free of coercion, discrimination, and violence. For sexual health to be attained and maintained, the sexual rights of all persons must be respected, protected, and fulfilled, end quote. And that's World Health Organization 2006 and 2010. Mm. Patients in palliative care and hospice care can experience sexual health. While sexuality, while sexual health is not merely the absence of disease, dysfunction, or infirmity, the presence of disease, dysfunction, or infirmity does not negate the possibility for a patient experiencing sexual health. You know, one thing that comes to my mind there is I work a lot with cancer. Uh, I work with an organization where, around where I am called the Women's Cancer Resource Center. So I talk to a lot of women and support groups and etc. And um, the longevity, you can get a six months or less um, prognosis uh, and live quite long, actually. Yes. And so, uh, well, in my wife's case, for instance, she lived eight and a half years beyond a diagnosis that uh, 
originally her prognosis was six months to a year. It actually never changed. She just kept being alive. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, and that's the thing about prognosis. It's, it's, it is not a science. It's more of an art. Um. It's more of an art. I mean, I think she was in hospice for two years. <laughs> and, you know, every time they had to kind of recertify her, they'd go, well, you still... Right. Or in that category, right? We just don't know. And so then you're you're talking about people who might be alive, you know, eight years, 10 years uh, with hospice and palliative care. And most people would not have trouble um, imagining that that long a lifespan without the possibility of being intimate with your partner mm-hmm. would be problematic. Absolutely. And, you know, for patients in palliative care, someone could be in palliative care for 20 years. If someone has a, um, a serious illness that may not necessarily be shortening lifespan, but is has a significant impact on their quality of life, it, it's conceivable someone could be in pal- receiving palliative care for quite some time. Um, and for many, for many individuals, being able to be physically intimate is important. Um, one of the things that I think we often forget as healthcare professionals about hospice, most hospice care is provided in people's homes. And so if you can imagine, and, and you've lived through this yourself, where you've had hospice care providers coming into and out of your home, it's incredibly intimate when people are in your home. Um, and if if you don't feel as though you can be intimate with a partner or, um, or if you don't feel as though people are asking questions about what you need to be able to be intimate with a partner. So, for example, if um, someone is having difficulty with um, positioning or mobility, being able to have a conversation and to have the healthcare professional initiate a conversation to say, you know, I understand that you're having more trouble with joint mobility and you're having trouble with movement and positioning. How has this impacted your ability to be intimate with your partner? Is this something that you'd like any advice, suggestions, or support with? Um, Because there are things that healthcare professionals can do in terms of providing information that could make it possible for a patient to remain intimate with their partner. Well, and just to be disclosing myself, it was me that was the problem in in my relationship with my wife. My own fear of pain in her <laughs> got in the way. And that's not uncommon. So, and interestingly, and interesting not in a happy way, but interesting in more of a, isn't it fascinating the way we as humans are wired? Um, we want to protect pain in the people we love, but in protecting our loved one who is sick from pain and because we don't want to hurt them we may end up causing them and ourselves a different kind of pain because we're cutting ourselves off um, physically from them and it's not uncommon for people to say they're really worried about hurting their loved one um, or and also it's tough to shift from thinking about sex and intimacy in the way that it was when you both were healthy um, to recognizing that physical intimacy may change when someone is ill, um, but it doesn't have to stop. So helping people understand that what physical intimacy looks like, it may, it may be different, um, but it doesn't need to be, okay, if we can't do all of the things we used to do 
I guess we can't do anything. Um, would Would you think, Kim? Um, this This is going to be a, a sort of um, uninformed um, thought here. Oh, those <laughs> but, are my favorite. Uh, <laughs> I love. I would think thought. that someone who has strong religious or philosophical objection to um, LGBTQ realities. Mm-hmm. Would have a what would have a notably difficult time with this aspect of supporting uh, LGBTQ patients. You know, Do you find that to be true, or is it more like if there's a protocol, they can just sort of follow? And it, no, I think it's a great question. I don't think that the barrier for I don't think the barrier would be in terms of addressing sex and sexuality with patients would be because patients are LGBTQ. I think if someone is uncomfortable talking about sex and sexuality, they're going to be uniformly uncomfortable talking about sex and <laughs> no sexuality with everyone, right? Um, uh-huh. but, but I will say helping people get the language to talk about these things and to recognize Let's say you're a healthcare professional who is deeply religious and you are uncomfortable talking about sex and sexuality in general. Um, you, don't, you don't have to be great at everything. You just need to know how to connect folks with resources that can fill the gaps that you can't address. And mm. so if you're a member of a team and you're providing in-home hospice care and you know that you're just not the go-to person for talk about sex, but you know, let's say that the that the nurse is or the social worker is, to be able to say to a patient and family, um, you know, I know someone who's really great about talking about issues of intimacy um, and sexuality with patients. They're amazing. They're great. Would you like to have an opportunity to talk with them. And so all they have to do is open the door, but they don't have to have all the skills to walk through it. Now, in an ideal world, I would want every healthcare professional to be able to have a conversation with a patient about about sex without cringing or being uncomfortable. Um, But that's tough. And most healthcare professionals have not had the training to have the conversation, to be able to talk with someone about erectile dysfunction or um, libido. And I would, I would venture a guess that most healthcare professionals, even if you ask them about um, the ways that disability impacts sex and sexuality, most really wouldn't know where to start. And that's, and it's not because... And so then it, it, it twists back around to um, the whole organization has to be mindful and be, be, um, seeing it as a goal to be inclusive in that way because then they'll make sure someone in every team right can exactly. is the go-to right it's and time it's for our second break the- oh go ahead yeah so we can continue this and the other thing i'd like to move to when we get back is the uh, the um incredible importance of community um and identifying families um which I, th- I think tends to have a greater significance for many LGBTQ people. Yes. Um, but I want to talk about that a little more when we come back. Excellent. So, uh, listeners out there, go find us on the break, weatheringgrief.com or my host page. And Kimberly's, at her Twitter account is at Kim Aquaviva. Back after the break. Your life, 
your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Kimberly Aquavita, author of LGBTQI Inclusive Hospice and Palliative Care. And before the break, Kim, I was mentioning that um, the they asked, I didn't want to leave without talking about the aspect of defining people's family and mm-hmm. communities. Um, and of course, that is not important only for LGBTQ people. I've thought about it a lot. I'm in a, a gospel choir, very diverse gospel choir, and um, mostly mostly black people in the choir talk about um, close people to them as their aunts, their uncles, their mm-hmm. cousins, their sons, their biology, not the most important factor. And that, that's so familiar to me because maybe it's my age, I'm 63, but um, my family was supportive, but most of my friends' families weren't, and the people that they befriended and connected to were literally family. And um, that just seems, I, when I when I did do this speaking engagement, there were people telling stories of um, misassumptions about who's important, keeping people out of the room, not checking with lovers and, you know, (laughs) brothers and sisters. Um, That just seems so elementally important because I can't imagine having gone through the experience of my wife's death without community. Mm -hmm. No, I'm glad that you brought this up. So the idea of chosen family is incredibly important. And it's important for all communities, but I think particularly in the LGBT community, um, that people have their family of origin, the family that they were either born or adopted into. And then they have the family that they've built over time of people who are important to them, people who love them and they love them back, um, and a really good a strong community support. And when hospice and palliative care professionals work with LGBTQ 
patients, it's really important to ask them questions about who they consider to be family and also to ask questions about what documentation they may have to protect their rights to choose who's making decisions for them should they become unable to make those decisions for themselves. Because even though, you know, a lot of LGBTQ folks have a family of origin and a family of choice, when you're facing a life-limiting illness, the issue of who gets to decide can become painful. And so in the absence of um, any kind of paperwork, whether that is uh, legal marriage paperwork or healthcare surrogate or um, healthcare power of attorney paperwork, LGBTQ patients may find themselves in a situation where a family of origin that they were distanced from all of a sudden appears and they have legal standing to make decisions about the patient's healthcare decisions, about um, decisions after death of disposition of property, uh, where the remains, where the person is buried or where their ashes are um, Mm. inurned or sprinkled. And so it is incredibly important to recognize not only the existence of families of choice, but that we as healthcare professionals have a role to play in making sure that, um, that there are things in place to support the patient choosing the role that they want those chosen family members to have in their care. Yes, and and maybe especially, you know, I a, a lot of the heterosexual people I know, kind of had the idea when marriage equality happened, sort of end of issue. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Not so much. Oh, good. Um, we're done with that. We're all. Yeah. And of course, anybody who is LGBTQ knows that it doesn't no. actually work like that, and that. Um, a legal change does not necessarily change how people's families are thinking about their right. their family members. And, and that can have such a dramatic impact at end of life. I can think it, of it, some stories in my own, you know, we had the paperwork and thank goodness. Because but, it, but it's sad that that comes up, right? It's, it's horrible that people have to face um, disputes or disagreements. Uh, during such a difficult and challenging time. I think one important thing that healthcare professionals can do in working with um, LGBTQ patients and families is really having conversations at the outset about who do you consider your family of choice? What role do you want them to play in decision-making about your health, in decision-making about your belongings if you were to die? Um, And then If they don't have any paperwork in place, helping connect them um, with resources, having a healthcare power of attorney or healthcare surrogate, these are things that hospice and palliative care programs, they have the forms. They can help people fill them out. Uh, It's a common misperception that people have to hire an expensive lawyer to have paperwork drawn up, and they don't. Um, Doing any kind of advanced directives Those are things that hospice and palliative care professionals can do. Certainly things like a will having to do with your property is something that a lawyer would need to do. But in terms of the healthcare decision making, that's very much within the wheelhouse of hospice and palliative care professionals. And interestingly, I just I just did a course on five wishes and and advanced directives and stuff recently for for mental health professionals. And, you know, I figured there would be a few people in the room who hadn't done it themselves. No, the majority, mm-hmm. about 75% of the room hadn't 
Wow. Well, um, and, and, and so if, if what's that? I was saying that's shocking, but not. It was shocking. <laughs> well, and the and the thing is, if if we ourselves as healthcare professionals are um, have a difficult time getting down to it. How do we then facilitate other people? <laughs> you Absolutely. know, but in a case in a case like we're talking about, it's so essential because, especially you know, rel- I I found with her relatives that they they just sort of kept their distance the whole time she was sick, hmm. but then when she was dying, they they wanted to storm in, you know, and. Um, they couldn't because we had taken care of things, but it was really disturbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, a disturbing experience, an upsetting experience for you. And to I have. don't think that's—I don't think that's uncommon. You know, no, it's they not. sort of. This is our sister. This is our. You know. Right. <laughs> um, well, and it's because it's, it's so emotional. I understood it was so emotional for them, and they had, in a way, now missed it because of their discomfort with their right. lifestyle. Right. And. Um, that's got to be a terrible experience for them. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, and I think that you're right. I think that for families who have lost contact with their LGBTQ loved one, whether because they cut them off or because the LGBTQ loved one decided that they weren't comfortable with the limitations placed on them um, by their loved one, um, these are these are issues that then come up at the end of life as people are struggling with lo- the time that they lost as a family with one another. Absolutely. Um, I want to change gears a little bit um, because one thing I was I was thinking as I was reading the entire book, it, it was intended for um, nurses, advanced, advanced care nurses, social workers, and chaplains. But I was thinking that that maybe the most profound impact on the deaths that I've experienced that weren't sudden was the AIDS. Mm, absolutely. And and I've heard so many stories of um, you know AIDS praying over trying to pray away the gay. And, right. You know um, how do you f- imagine that this can filter down um, through? Uh, you know, I don't think it would exactly be fair to demand of people that are making such a low wage that I they do a bunch of, you know, trainings, right. I guess. But how do you think the message can get disseminated to all the people who work with, you know, receptionists and yep. um, aid workers, all the people who are um, not in a highly professional category? No, it's a great question. Um, One of the the recommendations that I make in the book is that hospice and palliative care providers um, and organizations, so whether it's a program um, or a service within another organization, that they make sure that everybody there has some fundamental foundational information as part of orientation. That as you onboard anybody, whether they're a nurse or they're working the front desk, Everybody should have some basic information and education around working with LGBTQ patients and families and working with all patients and families. Um, I think we do uh, people who are CNAs and home health aides a disservice by not giving them opportunities to further their education around these issues because they don't make much money. And so Mm -hmm. organizations need to, instead of sending people to continuing ed, 
pay for them, pay for their time in orientation. And if it means spending an hour on the topic in orientation, pay for those home health aides to to get that education. Because although some organizations may say we can't afford to pay for folks to get this um, training, you can't afford for them not to Mm. because you'll lose out on serving your community. And the word does get around. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> word of mouth. It's <laughs> it's a powerful thing. You it know, is. it only takes a, a time or two of someone experiencing that kind of of assumption about them, or um, really, not intentionally, of course, but that can feel so assaultive to people um, to to have someone kind of. Um, not letting them be themselves right at the end of their life mm-hmm. when, you know, <laughs> it's been well, hard enough need, before. Right. And we need to meet people where they are. And the reality is that all kinds of people die. Actually, all of us die. And so organizations need to be prepared to give their staff, whether they're professional or what they would classify as non-professional staff, they need to treat all of them Um, and give them the access to the training they need because they're all professionals, regardless of what their title is, when it comes to impacting the experience of patients and families. And if I am in hospice care and I have a bad experience with the person who answers the phone, that's going to matter to me. And so we really need to educate everybody. Amen to that. Um, yeah, I was going to have to sh- ha- have you share a little more from the book, but we're kind of running out I'm of time. So we have just a couple of minutes left. I'm wondering how we can inspire people to go, you know, because it takes a little effort. Um, I found your book very readable. I think I think healthcare workers could could read it. Um, find much to appreciate but how can we inspire people to go do that work because it does take a commitment to try to integrate a different idea about this community into your thinking doesn't it it does does. some um, resolve it does I would say that if people are uncomfortable with the title of the book so if they read LGBTQ in that title and they're uncomfortable they should definitely pick up the book Um, because the more uncomfortable someone is with the topic, I think the more they're going to get out of the book, to be honest. Um, And and if you're a healthcare professional and you think, oh, I do this great already, you also need to read the book because there's a lot that all of us can do better differently. Um, And I would say to listeners who may have a a deep religious or spiritual um, background, that has told them or taught them that people who are LGBTQ are going to hell, which I hear, I hear, unfortunately, I hear that quite a bit um, from healthcare professionals. Okay, if I if I have this, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to cut you off. I'm so sorry. We're oh, out of time. Okay. <laughs> this has been good grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.